So today's uh, biblical biography is on Deborah. Uh, happens to be one of my, my favorite Old Testament uh, individuals. There's just a lot there. But it also has one of the most interesting verses to me in the entire Bible that basically curses people for not helping the Lord. Help the Lord. What, how does that strike you? What, what's interesting about that phrase? Well, we usually don't think about it in terms of us helping the Lord. Usually it's the reverse of the Lord helping us. Yeah, does, does the Lord need our help? No. No. But I think the, the circumstances in which uh, Deborah is used by God to, to bring about salvation in Israel at that time helps us understand, for us too, what, what does it mean to help the Lord? We're, we're called to help the Lord. Uh, we're, and so you'll see a, kind of a three-point uh, definition, I think, of if I were to sum up what I learned from uh, Deborah, which is found in Judges chapters 4 and 5, uh, it's different from some of the other biographies we've been doing recently, just lots of different parts of the Bible, lots of history, uh, Elijah, Elisha, uh, you know, big, big passages of scripture or, or you know, David, etc. This, this is a little different. This is more targeted to two chapters in the Bible and we'll, we'll go to some other parts too. But, uh, so the first part, so what it does it mean to help the Lord? Uh, the first thing that came out to me is to exemplify the response of God's people to God's calling. In other words, the leaders take the lead to exemplify the, the response of God's people to God's calling. Number two, to be available and faithful to God's calling, which in, in these two chapters, uh, Deborah brings out, means to offer yourselves willingly, as the people of Israel offered themselves willingly. And then the third point, uh, which isn't as obvious as the other two, but I think really comes out, is God is always faithful. God makes promises. God will keep the promises. Uh, but we can miss the blessing and we can face consequences when he uses other people through our unwillingness. So God's will will be accomplished. The question is, are we, are we going to be on his team or not? So first of all, Deborah is a judge. Uh, there are a number of judges that are talked about in the book of Judges. So I would call this the environment of Deborah, and we see this through all the judges. When you think of the judges, what, what comes to mind? What kind of environment? Is it, is it a happy environment? Yeah, why not? Usually Israel has been like sinful and they forgot about the Lord. Okay. So they've forgotten about the Lord, and then as a result, what happens? Okay, yep, so God sends somebody to, to rescue them. Is that necessarily because they're super sorry for what they've done? Or they, they really, really love the Lord? God, God does it for his own sake. And yes, they'll, they'll cry out for deliverance, uh, but they want God's deliverance. They don't necessarily want God. And so God provides this, this judge uh, to rescue them from a, a certain danger which they've brought upon themselves. Uh, what is that danger frequently, almost always, in Judges? Some attacking tribe, other people group. Yeah, people either from Israel's neighbors, or, or in this case, from, from right inside Israel. Uh, it tells the, the king of Canaan. 
So just that there is a king of Canaan shows that there's, there's problems because that promised land was supposed to be just for Israel. And yet there's this, this king of Canaan running the show and oppressing them from right inside their borders. So can I get a volunteer to read Judges 2, 10 through 19? This really kind of sets the environment of Deborah. Judges 2, 10 through 19. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So what jumps out to you as far as that environment? What, uh, how does it talk about spiritual decay? Complete unfaithfulness on the part of the Israelites. Okay. They're, yeah, just completely going after other gods rather than the Lord, even though the Lord remains faithful to deliver them. One thing about the priests. So when we think of judges, who do we think of? We think of these individuals that the Lord just raises up from, from different parts of Israel, different tribes, uh, different geographic areas around Israel uh, pertaining to the threats that they're facing at the time. So who was supposed to be the judges of Israel? What should uh, you can have a volunteer for Deuteronomy chapter 17, 8 through 13. Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. I can read it. Okay. Um, um, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right in another, or one kind of assault in another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise. Then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall choose. You shall come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in the office in those days. And you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare 
to you from that place from the place that the Lord will choose and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you according to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you you shall do you shall not turn aside from their verdict that they declare to you either to the right hand or to the left the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge or the judge the man shall die so you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So who is supposed to function centrally in judging Israel? Priests. Those would be the priests, right? So we see right off the bat, are, are any of the judges, at least up until Samuel, we'll kind of lay him aside for the moment, are any of them functioning as priests? The answer is no. They're, they're your average person not associated with the worship of the Lord in the temple. And so, by definition, we can say the priests aren't doing their job. Again, this is spiritual decay. It's an example of, okay, the, and we know from elsewhere, if we go forward to, you know, to Samuel, what do we know about Eli and his sons? Priests aren't doing so well, are they? They're, they're very corrupt. They're, they're not a moral authority. They're, they're far from judging the people. They're, they're taking bribes. They're, you know, they're oppressing the people. So the priests aren't faithful. When the priests aren't faithful, you're going to have spiritual decay. They're supposed to, to make sure the people know the law of the Lord and are applying it to their lives. Okay, so after spiritual decay, there's this predictable uh, consequence. You're going to have social dysfunction and enslavement. So Judges 21-25, basically the last verse in Judges, it says, In Israel there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It says that a number of times through Judges, just emphasizing okay, the spiritual decay, and as a result, that there is no... That there is no unity in the uh, the people of Israel. So if I could have a volunteer for, and this is going to be a passage we'll keep going back to. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Kind of a long passage, but there's, there's a lot in there that we're going to pull out in different ways. So 5, 1 through 17. Of Judges. Of Judges, yeah. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jal, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took the winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys sitting in a, on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. 
They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, Barak. Take captive your, take captive your captives, son of Abinoam. The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Makir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling of the flock, to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was search, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. You said 17? Yeah. Okay. And then we have just another volunteer. We'll, we'll read 18 through 27, and we'll, we'll keep coming back to both of these big chunks of, of Scripture. So verses 18 through 27, same chapter. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives at the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from the courses they fought against Sarah. The torrent Kishan swept them away. The ancient torrent, torrent Kishan, marched on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horses' hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling woman most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Okay, so we see here there's, there's spiritual decay talked about. New gods were being chosen. Right, that was in verse 8. We see a lack of leadership, but also of unity. So what was true of the people of Israel uh, during this, this liberation that the Lord accomplishes through, it, through Deborah? Is all of Israel involved in this? Where did some tribes stay? They stayed by the sea. Okay, or on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, in other words, they were not fighting the, the enemies of Israel alongside their, their fellow Israelites. So even with this threat, even with this call with these, these leaders and Deborah and Barak being raised up, not all of Israel was on board with it. They, uh, you know, they were involved in other things. So there wasn't a unity. Talks about in uh, verses six through eight, there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of physical danger. You're, you're not even going to go out on the roads because there's just so much dysfunction. Everybody's robbing people on the highways. Obviously, we have this threat from the king of Canaan. There's military weakness. Nobody has any swords because 
you know, they're they're just weak. They're just hiding. They're they're trying to avoid any problems. So they're enslaved. And then you have the divine deliverance. So the first, you know, at the beginning of chapter five, what I think, at least the commentators I was reading, as they're talking about the Lord, you know, this storm coming up from Edom, it is talking about this supernatural storm that then causes a lot of rain to come down and the river Kishon floods. And the thing about Sisera is he was a commander of a chariot force. So they're fighting the king of Canaan who has 900 iron chariots. Chariots don't do so well in the mud. They do great on dry ground. And so he was not expecting his chariots to get stuck in the mud. Presumably this was the dry season. But there was this supernatural storm that the Lord sent to have the, the chariots get stuck. And then Sisera and his people run for their lives. And that's... that's or detailed in chapter 4. Uh, chapter 5 is kind of a retelling of chapter 4 as a song. That is, uh, seems pretty clear, it was, it was mainly made by Deborah. It talks about a remnant in verse 13. So a lot of times in, uh, again going back to this wasn't all Israel, not all Israel was faithful. But there, there were those who were faithful that came down out of the hills, attacked Sisera and his army, and you know, through the Lord's action of immobilizing their chariots, they were victorious. And then finally, this Gentile woman, Jael. So she was, she was a Gentile woman, didn't have anything to do with Israel, but the Lord used her to actually kill the general of this Canaanite army after he had fled from his chariot. And so Deborah is saying in, in verses 24 through 27, blessed be Jael. Okay, the Lord has used Jael to, to, to kill this, this general that had been tormenting Israel for many, many years. So all three of those would be divine deliverance. Throughout the judges, you'll see divine deliverance. This is how it, it shows up in the environment of Deborah. And so if this is the environment, there are a lot of interesting things about the, the person of Deborah, which would be the second main section. So any, any questions about the environment or kind of judges in general of what we see and how, how Deborah's specifics apply to the, the general environment of the judges and how the Lord acted amid spiritual decay, social dysfunction and enslavement to provide divine deliverance. I recommend reading chapter four, but uh, we're not going to read the whole thing now. It's uh, somewhat long. So this person of Deborah, what? How does she refer to herself? In verse seven of chapter five, she calls herself a mother in Israel. So I think as we, you know, one of the things that a passage like this would bring up is, okay, see, here's a woman, she's leading, she's judging Israel, God's people. Uh, okay, so women, you know, it, the Bible's pretty clear, women, women should be able to have any role, and this, you know, this kind of proves it, right? 
Um, but it's interesting how she sees herself. She sees herself as a mother in Israel. There's a couple other things that come out. Uh, what other titles is she given here? It, it notes she, she's a wife, like she has a husband. We don't know much about him, but he's important enough. You know, it, it states, okay, she, she's married. She, she's part of a household. She's a prophetess, and she's a judge. So she is not the only woman prophet, either in the Old Testament or in the Bible. Uh, I bring out here the, the line under the wife, prophetess, and judge headline. It, it, it shows some other examples of women who spoke God's word to God's people. Um, Huldah prophesied during King Josiah's reign. Um, Anna prophesied about the birth of, of, of Christ and who he, you know, who he is and who, how God was going to use him. Um, Philip had a bunch of daughters in the New Testament that, that prophesied in the early church. And so you can, you can read about them in those passages, but they're, they're prophets. They're, they're woman prophets. So being a prophet in and of itself, it's, it's not like Deborah's the only one. There are some others. The next bullet down is some other women who have passages of Scripture that honestly sound a lot like Judges chapter 5. Uh, Judges chapter 5 being, I think we see a little bit of, of, of the prophecy. You know, this is, this is part of how she would prophesy. She's speaking God's word to God's people and, and describing to them the significance of what's happened. So Miriam did this very similarly in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Hannah, on the occasion of uh, Samuel's birth, had a similar type of a, a prayer to the Lord. And then Mary in Luke chapter 1. Uh, very similarly, all three of these, like Deborah's passage, they're talking about the Lord lifting up the lowly, opposing the proud, uh, destroying the oppressor for his own mercy's sake. So to say that Deborah is the only woman who the Lord used to speak like this is, is not accurate. Actually, there's a lot of commonality with these other women in both the Old and the New Testaments. However, there are some unique things about Deborah. So in chapter 4, verse 5, it she, she settles disputes for Israel. So here she is standing in the place of the priest, settling Israel's disputes. Clearly she was very wise. She was very respected. People understood that when they went to her, they would get a fair judgment and they would get insight into the truth of a situation. She issues calls to service and action. So uh, in chapter four, verses six and 14, Two times, she gives a very specific command from the Lord to Barak. So it'd be good to, uh, to read uh, chapter 4, verse 6, and then uh, verse 14. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of 
Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? Verse 14, And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with ten thousand men following him. Okay, so this is very clear. She is she is speaking the words Lord's word to to Barak, saying, "Okay, this is very very specifically what and when you're supposed to act." And so then he he does because he realizes this isn't just Deborah speaking; she she's speaking for the Lord. Uh, she glorifies God. That's one of the things we frequently see prophets doing. And in verse 3, she's very clear. In chapter 5, verse 3, she's glorifying God. As a judge, maybe we see her most clearly in these passages by saying blessings and curses. So, who does she curse? In verse 23 of chapter 5. Okay, so we don't know where Maraz was, you know, what, what tribe Maraz was, was part of. We assume this was a town, maybe a clan, uh, but we really don't know for sure where whereabouts they were or, or why they are specifically called out when there were a, a bunch of Israelite people who were not fighting in this battle. But she shames those that she doesn't curse too, doesn't she? She, she shames those that stayed by their ships. She shames those that stayed by you know, the other side of the Jordan with the sheep and, and were not fighting. But what's interesting about that is she is pronouncing the judgment based on you know, speaking for the Lord. Who was called to fight in this battle? Very specifically in verses 6 and 14, what two tribes? It was Zebulun and Naphtali, right? It was very, very specifically who Deborah told Barak to go to gather 10,000 and to fight. So why is she shaming those who were not from those tribes for not fighting? They weren't called. So I found that interesting. What, what do you all think? Could the reason, could the reason that they weren't called be because they weren't going to respond anyway? It could be. I think geographically speaking, one of the, the reasons why those two tribes in particular were called, they were most directly uh, adjacent to the area where the king of Canaan was. So just to, from a regional perspective, they, you know, they, were, they were right under, right under his thumb and, and right there available for the battle. But yeah, I mean, God knows people's hearts. And certainly we know that some who were not called did fight. You know, it talks about Ephraim, it talks about several of the other tribes, and they, they showed up, even though they weren't particularly called. So, 
I don't know. As I was thinking about this, I'd be interested in you know if you would see this differently. But this seems to be an example of okay, there's there's clearly an enemy of Israel, even if I'm not directly called. Does that mean I'm not gonna be involved? You know, when I see uh, you know a leader, when I see God moving, am I am I gonna get on board, even if I haven't specifically been ordered to do something? Am I am I gonna am I gonna take the initiative? Am I gonna take the lead? Am I going to offer myself up to, to God, where, where I see God moving? Because there's blessing, right? They, those that were not called were still blessed. They said, wow, you, you, you showed up and you, you fought. You, you, where the Lord was moving, you, you helped the Lord. And so... Because she says this, she's speaking for the Lord. We understand God is pleased by their action, and he is displeased by the other's inaction. Where else do we see blessings and curses show up in the Bible? There's a long section about that in Deuteronomy. Okay, yeah. So as, as Israel is getting ready to come into the promised land, you know, Moses makes sure to say, okay, when you go into the land, these tribes are going to go to that mountain. These tribes are going to go to this mountain. You're going to speak the blessings if you obey. You're going to speak the curses if you don't. And this is going to be a reminder to the people of Israel. Okay, this is who God is. This is who you are. Are you going to be faithful to this covenant? Because there's blessing if you do. There's curses if you don't. So yes, absolutely. She is, she is echoing those blesses and curses that should be very, very clearly understood by Israel. What do we see about Deborah that she, what's her primary focus in, in leading Israel during this time? Is it her own power? Is it her own authority? What does she continually try to do? She's um, giving instructions from the Lord. She's trying to get them to follow God's way. And what's a big part of that? What does she want to see happen? Does she want to see other people take the lead? Right there early in chapter 5, right? What does she say, you know, praise the Lord because in Israel the leaders took the lead? What had not been happening in Israel up to that point? Were the leaders taking the lead? They weren't. The priests weren't taking the lead. The, the elders weren't taking the lead. There, there, there was nothing. People were hiding. People were uh, avoiding conflict, accepting servitude, and not being zealous for the Lord. So when she sees that happen differently, after she calls Barak to gather this army, and they fight as the Lord has commanded them to, She's ecstatic, right? She says, well, praise the Lord. This, this is how the Lord's people should be functioning. What, was she out front? Where was she at? Was she with Barak? Yes, she did go with Barak. Yep. 
What did she say about that? Did she say it was critical that she be there? No, who said it was critical that she should be there? Barack. Barack did, right? Now we can look at that as Barack not having faith, or we can look at that as Barack having faith. In other words, okay, I, I know the Lord is with you. We, we've seen it over and over. I, I want the Lord with us, therefore I, I want you with me. Or we can say, wow, I'm really scared to go here on my own. I mean, it, you can look at that either way, but either way it's clear Deborah for her part didn't see her being there as essential. What did she say to Barak when he, when he asked her to, to go with him? He said, I, I won't go unless you go. What did, uh, I, I didn't write the verse down here in, in chapter four. It's verse nine. She says, I will gladly go with you, but you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So she says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go, but you're missing the point. Uh, the, the Lord will be glorified. The Lord will use people for his glory. And yeah, hopefully you'll be faithful to your part, but that this, you know, you, you won't you won't get the blessing you may have otherwise if you, you know, were just super bold. You know, but Barak was faithful. But Deborah was consistently, it's not about me, right? It's 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 about God. It's about God working through God's people. And she just aches to see those leaders take the lead. Even Barak, right? She wanted Barak to take the lead with the army. She wanted the commanders that she praises in chapter 5 to take the lead with the army. She was not a military leader. She, she didn't want to be a military leader. She wasn't called to be a military leader. One interesting uh, contrast with Miriam. I, I, I thought it was really interesting how Deborah in some ways paralleled Miriam. What problems did Miriam have? Who did she get jealous of in? She got jealous of Moses. Okay, in Numbers chapter 12. And why was she jealous of Moses? What did she say? Anybody remember? It was basically, hey, does the Lord only speak through Moses? I mean, he, he's out there, but hey, we're, we're pretty awesome too. You know, me and Aaron, we're, you know, we're, 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 you know, the Lord speaks through us. And was that true? Yes, it was. She was called a prophet. She, you know, the Lord used her. But did she want more? Was she, was she jealous for more authority? What was Deborah jealous for more authority? No, far from it. She wanted to lift others up. She, she wanted to work within the, the scope of her gifting, her calling. And I think that, uh, that that's one of the big reasons why you know, she, uh, you know, she was you know, praised in, in judges like she was. So the next, the next spot there. So exception to male leadership. If we look at tradition, indictment, and provision. So in Israel, who were kings? Were they men or were they women? Almost without fail, they were men. There was one woman ruler in Judah named Athaliah. She became queen by killing her own 
relatives after her son was killed, and she was an absolute disaster. Does the Bible say anywhere specifically that, that, that men were supposed to be king at this point? If it does, I couldn't find a place. But based on tradition, men would rule. Judges, besides Deborah, are judges men or women? Men. They're men, right? And prophets, most of the prophets in Israel were men. You think of Elijah, you think Jeremiah, you think Isaiah, you think Ezekiel. Like, most of the prophets are men. So it seemed like there was a custom that would say, okay, men, men fill these roles. There's, there's a tradition. But to me, it's interesting. God raises up people counter to those traditions at various places and times, like almost as an indictment of sin. Like the way that he is providing salvation is an indictment on the people who maybe would normally be used in those roles, not being faithful. You know, not a priest, not a man. Okay, I will, I will save my people. And so, but it's going to show, you know, you leaders who are not taking the lead, you leaders who are sitting there with great searchings of heart, that are not being faithful to your calling. Okay, you're, you're going to miss out on the blessing and you're going you're gonna to maybe even face a curse, you know, consequences for your unfaithfulness. I'm going to save my people regardless. I'm going to provide my divine deliverance through the hands of a woman, if needed. She'll be faithful, in this case two women, to, to accomplish my, 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 my intent. I don't want to put too much into this, but it, it struck me as interesting that there are some parallels with polygamy in the Old Testament. If I'm looking at women's position relative to men, there wasn't a hard and fast prohibition in the Old Testament on polygamy. But what's true of just about every case where polygamy comes up in the Old Testament? Is it, is it a happy situation or is it a, a bad situation? It's bad. It's, it's bad. Does the Lord use women who are brought into these polygamous households for his purposes? A absolutely. Uh, Jacob, right? We would not have had the 12 tribes of Israel without a fair amount of polygamy going on. You know, those, those, those 12 tribes were not born from one wife. King David, okay. Solomon, not the son of his first wife, or even I think his second, third, or fourth wife. And the, you know, the terms on which he brought Bathsheba into his house, okay, really, really bad stuff. But Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon. He was the king of Israel. He was the ancestor of David. Or um, he was the ancestor of Jesus, sorry. Um, and Samuel. So Samuel was the son of a, a first wife, but she had not been able to have children, so married a second wife, and the second wife had 
severely abused the first wife. And yet Samuel was used by God mightily. When he was promised to bring her out of her distress, she asked the Lord. So all of these, what's true? What do they bring out in frequently in men as far as, does it highlight their sin? And yet does God accomplish his purposes through these women? If we want to look at New Testament women's roles in worship, uh, if we could have someone read 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 16. Okay, so there's, there's a lot in there that I won't even uh, attempt to, you know, it goes beyond the scope, but the end there, right? We have no such custom, nor have the other churches of God. So it's, what's at play here? It, it, it's a custom. It's how is God going to be portrayed? How are the people going to be brought together as a people? So when, when there are thoughts that, okay, we, sh- you know, we, should, we should have things done otherwise than this. So we're, we're Baptists, right? Or at least we go to a Baptist church. I'm, I'm not sure I would still ever just simply call myself a Baptist. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, happen to be a member of a Baptist church. But Baptists in general, we, we like our tradition, right? We, we like our, our customs, and we think there's a traditional way that things should be. Uh, how is that good? How, how is it good to see what customs and traditions do for us? When we're seeing who we are and who God is. Well, if there's a good standard, then yeah, it's helpful to us to stick to it, to uh, maintain a good habit rather than just do what we feel like doing. Yeah. And specific to men and women. Uh, in, in worship teaching. Obviously, Deborah at this time was, was, was leading as she was speaking the word of the Lord authoritatively. But as far as the tradition of, okay, men should be doing that, do you think, do you think Deborah would agree with that? I think based on her life, she would, she would agree with that. She wanted the leaders to take the lead. She was going to be faithful but not simply to lift herself up. So we see through tradition, okay, there's something in how God has made men and how God has made women that just kind of instinctually with our customs, this, this is a way that men should be. Men should take the lead. You know, women should offer themselves willingly. All people should offer themselves willingly, but, but men in particular, the leaders should take the lead. 
And she wants that. She wants to facilitate that. Because tradition, something conscious. So I think the question is, why, why don't we have any other practices? Is it just because a group of people have decided over time to, you know, to have, have certain interests in control? I think in a case like this, it's, you know, traditions tell us something more about God. And so it's, it's good to recognize that. What other, what other traditions would we want than the ones that we have? And then to think as I, you know, these are questions to, to ask yourself. Why, why don't we have any other customs? What others would we want? And would they glorify God and edify one another if we had them? So any, any questions about this part about just the person of Deborah and the thought of being a mother in Israel? Now we can go on to, to the application. There's, there's a lot of applications here. Um, have a volunteer to read Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Just the first application that came to my mind, you know, if the leaders take the lead and the people offer themselves willingly, well, that, that sounds like what God has, God took the lead to save us from bondage save us from our sin, and Jesus offered himself willingly. So if we're looking at you know, God as an example to his people and what Deborah is praising in the, God working through the people, let's, you know, God did that himself. So Philippians 2, 5 through 9. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to, you, to be used to his own advantage. Rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself became, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. You said nine, but I'm going to yep. with ten. So okay, the, go the ahead. name of Jesus, every knee <laughs> should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if God took the lead, Jesus offered himself willingly. The second application, God desires faith from all. So Deborah desired faith from all Israel, right? She, she desired all of the leaders to take the lead. She desired all the people to offer themselves willingly. God desires faith from all. God blesses faithful Gentiles like Jael. You know, she is singled out. No. No, no person, no Hebrew is singled out for, for blessing the way that, that Jael, this Gentile woman, is. In other words, God loves to lift up the lowly, you know, those from outside of fellowship to bring them in and, and bless faithfulness. And curses faithless Jews. In other words, God also humbles the proud. And we see that through Meroz. Um, one passage you can look up later. 
Uh, Romans 11, 11 through 25, this talks about the Jews and the Gentiles and the breaking off of branches and the grafting into God's people that, you know, it's, it's, it's about faith. And yes, there are some advantages to having a, a, you know, a previous relationship with the Lord to know about the Lord's word. But at the end of the day, it, it's going to be faith and, and God's going to oppose those proud people that think they know him but are not listening, are not obeying. And he's going to lift up the lowly who listen and respond in faith. First um, Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, it talks about how God desires all men to be saved. In other words, he, he wants that word to go out. And, and the desire is that all men hear and, and repent and, and obey. Just like Deborah desired that all in Israel would would obey. They would respond. The leaders would take the lead. And the people would offer themselves willingly. Um, the third application, God works through men and women whom he uniquely gifts and commissions. This idea of helping the Lord. It's God working through us. He's gifting us. He's commissioning us. Deborah was unusual. But Deborah was clearly gifted. Deborah was clearly commissioned, and she understood her gift and her commissioning very well. She didn't want to go outside the scope of it. She wasn't trying to build an empire, but she also wasn't trying to run away from it. You know, and hide behind somebody else. So, you know, in, in Philippians, uh, I think two, twelve, and thirteen, it's it, work out your faith. We work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It says God who works in you to will and to act for his good purposes. Uh, question to be asked of ourselves. Do we wait to be explicitly told to do something or not to do something? Or do we take the initiative and walk in the spirit to offer ourselves willingly? In other words, are we those tribes that aren't Zebulun and Naphtali saying, Oh, come on, God, you never told me to, you never told me to do that. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good here with my sheep in, in Reuben. You know, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm good in Dan with my ships. You know, you, you, you haven't called me to, to do this. You know, somebody else can do that. Uh, I'm in the Navy, and one of the things I frequently would tell my sailors is that the one phrase I hate the most is, that's not my space. Uh, on a ship, there's different compartments and different, different divisions of people are responsible for the upkeep of various spaces. And if I'm walking through a space and something is clearly wrong, and, and there's a sailor working in that space, and he clearly or she clearly sees that something's wrong and doesn't do anything about it, well, I'm not, I'm not responsible for that. Uh, okay, do, do you live here? Do you work here? If the ship sinks, is it gonna impact you? Okay, come on. I, I don't, don't, don't tell me that's not my space. Just to fix the problem. You, you see it, you're able to fix it. Be faithful. Uh, take the initiative. Uh, I think you know, God can look at us that way and say, come on guys. Uh, what role does tradition hold in your personal or your corporate walk of faith? You know, how, do you, how do you hold tradition? Do you leave room for God to act, even as you rest in traditions edifying norms? In other words, you know, if, if you 
you know, if, if you see God working in a way, are you going to say, you know, like the Pharisees did about Jesus healing on the Sabbath? Oh, no, 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 that's, that's against our traditions. You know, but Jesus said, no, the, the Sabbath was made for man. God is, God is not beholden to the letter of how we interpret traditions. You know, even with men and women, like, you know, God makes people faithful. And by your fruit, you'll know them. Deborah's fruit was very good, partially because she was faithful and partially because she didn't, she didn't try to put herself forward. She realized that the, the best thing that could happen is for other people to take the lead. And she was trying to encourage in that way. But she saw God working. She wanted to be faithful. Uh, something that came up in my thought. So thank God for godly mothers who, who don't lead in their own strength. So I don't know how many of you folks have mothers who, who blessed you. Uh, I don't know how many of you may have grown up in households where your mother primarily raised you. Uh, I know I did. My parents were divorced. My my mom did all the disciplining. My mom worked to, to bring an income to support us. Wouldn't have been the way she would have preferred to do it. God worked through her. Was it perfect? No. God's ideal purpose is that children have a mother and a father, with the father taking the lead, and you know the, the, the family offering themselves before God. And when you don't have that, there will be consequences, but God is faithful. So, yeah, thank God for godly mothers who don't lead in their own strength. My mom would never have claimed to have led in her own strength. She knew God was providing you know, for everything. And then finally, thank God for church eldership, uh, for husbands' spiritual leadership in their homes. It, it makes a big difference when the leaders take the lead. We see it in our church. You know, we, we see it in our elders. And we see that Deborah is affirming this. So uh, th thank God that we see that encouraged and modeled in this church. Um, any, any wrap up thoughts, questions? I actually felt a little bit strange about leading this session, even though Deborah is one of my favorite Old Testament characters, because I'm thinking, you know, it would actually be good if a woman was doing this, just to kind of throw it out there, like, uh, okay, that this was something of a one-off. My wife Amory's sitting there in the back, and I I'm sure you know, she is gifted. She knows the Bible at least as well as I do. and. You know, she she has her own views on things like this. We we talk about it. We you know, I mean, I'm certainly blessed to prepare this. In, you know, running things by her because that's how families work well. Um, can I pray for us? Unless there are any more thoughts. Father, thank you for Deborah. Thank you for. Lord, her, her faith in you, of how you work, Lord, how your, your salvation is not dependent on any one person's obedience, but how you are sovereign, how there is blessing in, in 
following you, in offering uh, ourselves to be used by you. Lord, to affirm who you are, how you have made us. Lord, bless us as we, as we prepare for uh, the worship service. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.